This is another episode of Dear Analyst, and today I'm super excited to have Zach Wilner, who is the head of data and data and analytics at Pair Eyewear, and he's going to talk to us all about his background in data and analytics, leading up to his current role as the head of data at Pair Eyewear. Zach, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Alex. Super excited to be here. So to kick things off, can you tell the audience a little bit about your background leading up to your current position at Pair? Yeah. So I went to school over at Boston College studying actually analytics and business operations. So I always kind of had a knack for data and analytics. From there, kind of really started much in the bigger space. I worked a little bit at PwC in their technology consulting. And then moved over to Wayfair to work on international logistics. And so we did a lot of problem solving around how can we build out really smart and data-driven analytics decisions within the international supply chain for Wayfair. Mm -hmm. um, from there, decided to kind of go a little bit smaller. And so right before Pear was over at Bombas, very well known for their socks. It was really early on there and kind of saw a bunch of the different analytics functions build out everything from marketing analytics to product analytics to, to biz ops, which ultimately kind of led me over to Pair. Pair Eyewear is a, a direct consumer eyeglass company. And so I came over here about two years ago now to start and lead the data and analytics functions. Very cool. And so I guess, do you have like a passion for, I guess, the DDC world and staying in this kind of realm of like e-commerce or is this just kind of like where you just kind of landed up today? Yeah, I think the, a little bit of a mix. You know, I think I, it kind of was a little bit serendipitous at the time to fall into Wayfair and then kind of led me down the path of e-commerce. I think, you know, it's one of those things where over time you just start to become passionate about the space. Bombas and now Pair, both actually Shark Tank companies. And so I like to say, you know, I've found my niche in direct-to-consumer Shark Tank companies. You know, who, who knows what it's like in the future, but I think right now I found like a real passion within the e-com space. Got it. And I guess kind of diving into your current role, one thing that you had to do at Pair was kind of building the data infrastructure from zero to what it is now. And for a lot of people, especially if your team is not that big, that's a pretty daunting task. I'm curious how you approached building the data infrastructure at Pair. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think there's, you know, necessarily one perfect path. I think the path that we went down, it was really taking a stepwise approach. And so coming into Pair, I think rather than, you know, take the cookie cutter, Bombas or Wayfair or any other company's data stack and just apply it, I really wanted to take the approach of like, what would this look like from a blank space perspective? What do we really need here and where are the teams at? And so... Coming in, the first thing was just like assessing the data aptitude for each team. And what we kind of did from there was realize like there was a desire to use data, um, but folks were generally pulling it from disparate sources or didn't even know where to pull it at the time. And so I would say the first probably about six months of my time at Pair were really focused on just foundational building. So how can we implement uh, a data warehouse? How can we implement tools like DBT and Stitch? 
and just get data landed from source into data warehouse, handle all of the cleaning. And so we kind of really focused on that for about six months and then really started to build out our like beehive side of things. So putting on top looker and going kind of team by team to assess what did that team need to accurately understand their area of the business or to enable day-to-day decision-making. And so we kind of then laid on top Looker. Ultimately, we started using Heap for web tracking. And so we went this real stepwise approach to say, let's build a really strong foundation, understand the needs of the business, and then slowly layer on tool after tool and train folks within the organization. Got it. And I, I like the fact that you mentioned that you didn't just take some cookie cutter stack from your previous companies. And so when you're building this from a stepwise approach, did you have, did you work with like a uh, data engineer or were you doing this all yourself? I'm curious, like how that uh, dynamic worked. Yeah. So, you know, definitely can't take all the credit here. Pretty quickly after I joined, we brought on a consultant, an analytics engineer who I'd worked with in, in a previous life. Um, and kind of between the two of us, we really started making the inroads. I think, you know, pretty quickly, our first full-time hire was an analytics engineer. Okay. And really the reason building, the reason for that was if we wanted to build this foundation really strong, first needed to get the folks in that could do the ETL work, that could do the pipelines before we even took, you know, took on analytics folks to start doing uh, deep dive analysis and dashboards. Got it. And so the consultant was the one helping with setting up those ETL pipelines, I assume. Exactly. Yep. Between him and myself, we were in the weeds day after day, figuring out what pipes we needed, what transformations were going to be needed from the business and really standing up a stable system. Got it. And I guess one question I had about more specific to the industry that you're in, did you find any interesting patterns in terms of the pipelines or tooling or techniques that you had to use specific to like pair in this DTC space that may be different from other companies. I'm sure, you know, the, the stack from Wayfair, like you said, is different from Bombas, which is different from pair. I'm just curious if you'd noticed anything interesting or nuances about how you, how you had to set up the infrastructure specific to pair. Yeah. So, you know, I think what's really interesting is a lot of the direct consumer companies have a very similar tech stack of, you know, Shopify, Facebook ads, Instagram, TikTok, or you kind of name the, the big five marketing channels. And I'd say most D2Cs have them. And, you know, most D2Cs are probably out of Shopify at this point. And so a lot of that is very standard. I think some of the big nuances with Pair is really moving to a medical device company. And so in the move to Pair, we were in a much different space where, yes, we had Shopify and yes, we had all these marketing channels, but we're also dealing with people's personal health information. And so one of the big considerations early on was, are we fully equipped to handle that today? And one of the calls we had to make early on was like, no, you know, like we, we weren't ready to be HIPAA compliant. We weren't ready to handle all that PHI and the prescription information. And so that was actually one of the things in this approach where we said, you know, let's actually keep it out of scope for now. And let's figure out what we need to do and how we need to work with our partners to make sure that we have encryption end to end on some of these processes. So I would say it was interesting for Pair where it was a lot more focused on regulations than I think a lot of other, you know, e-com players. 
Got it. Interesting. Yeah, there. I'm sure that's a whole other world of tooling and regulations and policies that you have to abide by. So we'll, we'll get into that in this episode. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, speaking of marketing, you mentioned Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Classic question for many DDC companies and uh, I guess other companies is how do you properly attribute the return on investment from these different channels? So I know that was a project you worked on early on. So curious how you handle, how Pair handles marketing attribution from a data perspective. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, this was pretty much the first thing when I first joined Pair that we were focused on, you know, how do we enable our marketing team to be, to have all the information at their fingertips to properly attribute budgets. And so attribution, obviously, like you mentioned, hot topic amongst all of these companies. You know, many different approaches we've seen, right? We saw the industry go from last click, the last clicks and survey to multi-touch models. iOS 14 comes out, right? Multi-touch models kind of start to falter a bit. And so, you know, really early on, myself and our head of marketing grant, we're trying to understand like where, where we left at this point, right? We had iOS 14, we had session tracking that was broken. And so... Our approach here was kind of a unique one. You know, first thing was just like understanding our data, right? Like how many sessions does it take for someone to purchase? What do we know that that time between like seeing an ad and purchase looks like? And so in understanding that, I think we were at a unique place where we were able to roll out some models like an MTA where we weren't concerned with, you know, three, four, five session orders. And so when we actually- What is MTA, by the way, again? You said MTA or NTA? Oh, MTA. MTA, MTA. multi-touch attribution. Oh, multi-touch. Got it. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And so we we built out a unique, like, homegrown attribution model here. We actually call it our customer-centric attribution model. And so, you know, without getting into all of the details, what Grant and I really started to determine was that the attribution industry as a whole, we thought overcorrected to the super complex super complex models and trying to take what an end customer saw and map it to like all of the variety of channels marketers were now using, right? Google used to just be paid search, right? You search on Google, you see mm-hmm. an ad, that's all it was. Now you go on Google, you have paid shopping, paid search. Google does display ads now. You know, Google has expanded into so many different things. And so attribution took this turn to you know, figure out the most complex model possible. And what Grant and I kind of came to was, what if we were to simplify and actually look at it from a customer perspective, right? How does a customer view our marketing tactics? And then how do we apply our spend to those tactics that a customer views? And so to give you a really basic example, you know, you're on New York Times and you see an ad, you as a consumer don't know who that's powered by right? That could be powered by a bunch of different ad providers, whether it's Google, whether it's like a Taboola, so on and so forth. And so what we wanted to do is flip the script and say, what does Al think he just saw? And let's put his order into that bucket and let's put our spend against that as well. And so we remapped the way that we did attribution and we found it to be extremely successful. You know, attribution is an ever-changing environment. And so you know, I'd be remiss to say like we don't reevaluate it often and understand, do we need to make updates? Is the model outdated? You know, but I would say for the past roughly two years, we've seen that model be extremely successful, especially when it comes to a lot of lift studies that we've done with our marketing partners. Got it. That, that was actually my follow-up question is how you determine what success looks like. And it looks like you 
look at the outputs of the model and compared it to, I guess, these more qualitative lift studies. Is that right? Yeah. So we we run a couple of lift studies with you know partners like Facebook. I think the other thing about attribution, this is more of my perspective on it, is like we're never going to know the exact dollar amount, right? We're we're very far from the days where you would know exactly where out came from and how many ads you saw and what ads. And so. I think a lot of attribution is also just about directionality, triangulation, right? Did we see a 5% increase on Facebook cost to acquire a customer? That's really helpful. Not necessarily the absolute dollar, right? The absolute dollar amount is important mm-hmm. and we still try to optimize as much as we can for it, but trying to pull back and not get so lost in, you know, the absolute dollar amount and instead really understand how are things fluctuating as we spend up and down on certain channels. Got it. Very interesting. I guess moving on a little bit, or I guess we're getting a little bit down the funnel, so to speak, pricing. I know that pricing projects were also really important for, for Pear and for you. I'm curious if you can share any interesting pricing projects, tests that you've run and any results that you can potentially share with the, with the audience. Yeah, I think, you know, we do a lot in the pricing space. I think we do a little bit on the consumer insight side and, and research around pricing. But I, I think one project that really sticks out to me is our cart minimum project. And so mm-hmm. as a business, our model is a limited edition drop. So about every week we roll, we launch about 20 different designs to our customers for them to buy. And so what we were finding was we were getting so many like one SKU orders or one unit orders. And as we start to evaluate the longevity of the business, right, one of the things you start to think about is the margin impact of that, right? And what's the trade-off of getting a customer to buy one item versus, you know, maybe getting them to buy two a little bit less often, but at a much better margin. And so our team worked really thoroughly alongside the marketing team, the digital product team to understand what would a program look like if we were to implement cart minimums. And so for those who aren't familiar with cart minimums, you go to any site, it says like, hey, $50, you get free shipping. That's what we're kind of talking about here is like, how do you actually set that threshold? Like, well, how have companies come to say $50 is the mark or $100, $150 is the mark? And so, you know, our team is really responsible to understand what those trade-offs are. And like I said, we of course have partners across the organization. We're really focused on understanding at what point would we not lose revenue not lose significant revenue by implementing a cart minimum while also allowing our customers to reach a little bit more. All right. So if you're buying a one unit top today on our website, our top frames go for $25. And so Mm -hmm. how can we create a system where somebody reaches a little bit further, but you don't have to reach too far where that person decides they're going to leave the site, you know, go somewhere else or just decide not to purchase. So that's where we really spent the majority of our effort during that project. Yeah. Yeah, I guess one was the output and just kind of thinking about more tactically was the output kind of like, you know, like kind of like a sensitivity table where it's like if the minimum is $20, you know, we're expected foregoing this amount of revenue and making this amount of revenue. But if we raise the minimum to $30, it's like this thing. And you kind of just pick something that made sense for the team to go with. Yeah. So we started off with, with a distribution of our order values. And what you'll generally see in, in something like that is some sort of a bell curve, right? And you'll start to really be able to identify where are your orders hovering around. 
And from there, you can actually start to see those drop points. And generally, those drop points are like the troughs in that curve are coming at points where it's impossible to reach a dollar amount, right? So you're selling, mm-hmm. you know, products in increments of five or ten dollars. You're never really going to see an order value of like twenty seven fifty, right? And you'll see those troughs kind of come through your data. And so what we first did was see where are the peaks and valleys, where most of the people coming in, where is, and so we looked for that first big peak. And then you could also look at the next peak, right? So like where are the two biggest value orders? And that first gives you an idea of where should you aim to have customers reach for? Then exactly to your point, a lot of it comes down to sensitivity analysis. So once we were able to isolate it to I believe at the time it was like three or four different values that we were going between. We started to just run sensitivity analysis models where we understand what would the trade-off be and at what conversion rate loss would this go back to break even? So if we were to put a cart minimum at $30 and you were to have a conversion rate loss of 5%, you may still actually net out break even because you've now pushed your average order value up by X amount. And so that was really where we focused and saying like, are we okay with that sensitivity? Is 5% reasonable? And when we got to the point where we said, you know what, like 5% actually feels like a, a overestimation of where conversion rate would take a hit. Plus we'd get people to reach. And then you start to take into other factors like promotions and making sure that there's a really good customer experience behind it. Mm-hmm. We got to the point where we said the trade-off is worth it. And mm-hmm. we should go ahead with this at 5%, you know, is something that we're really comfortable with as, as a risk. Got it. And I guess in terms of backing this up to the overarching goal or, or, you know, OKR, where we want to call it, and it was to increase the number of products in a given order, but the customer may be ordering with less frequency. Um, is that kind of the overall urging goal that you wanted to achieve? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's how do you okay. push up average order values? And therefore, how do we make, how do we kind of amortize some of those like fixed costs that we have, like picking mm-hmm. packing in our warehouse, packaging, all of that. And so if we can push Got up it. that average order value, you know, the $5, let's say it takes you for your warehouse to pack an order and send it out um, as a percentage drops pretty quickly. Um, and so we can drive up that average order value. Each order going out the door um, has a much better margin. And then of course, yes, the trade-off was then uh, that customer probably isn't going to come back for a little bit longer. Um, and so does Got that it. really make up for it? Got it. So I guess let's, you know, dive a little deeper and look into the actual customers themselves. And of course, with any D2C companies, you always have to look at who the customer is. And I'm curious what kind of analyses you've done and projects you've done around customer segmentation, demographics, and of course, what were the potential end results of those analyses? Yeah. See, I mean, it's super important part of all of this, right? Even when we think about something like cart minimums, really understanding who your customer is allows you to make a better decision as to how do you set something like a cart minimum. And mm-hmm. so you can think about that as, you know, are you a super high end customer like the apples of the world where, you know, setting a hundred dollar cart minimum isn't going to be a barrier. But when you think about you know, we would call within the e-com industry like a Walmart type of customer, right? The average American customer, if you're starting to set your cart minimums at $100, $150, you're going to price out a lot of the market. And so one of the big focuses coming in for me was 
you know, we can dig through all of our first party data and learn a lot about our buying behaviors, but we won't ever really be able to learn about who that customer is unless we actually start to do outside research. And so kind of the next building block actually after we got through the BI build was starting to work on building out a consumer insights function. And so consumer insights for us is um, really like qualitative research. And so we've actually gone out both to the industry, to our customers and surveyed them and understood what do glasses buyers look like in the US? And then where do our customers fit in and all of that? And you're able to get a lot of really rich information like gender breakdowns, age breakdowns, household income. And you really start to paint this picture of like, who is the pair customer? And in knowing that, not only does it help things like the cart minimums, like I mentioned, but it also helps our marketing team actually drive strategy, right? Now we can turn to our marketing team and let them know, like we are over-indexed in female buyers, right? And, and so we may need to actually go deeper into the male audience or the younger audience. It really will just depend on your business. And then you can kind of find the platforms to reach them on, right? So you're, you know, if you're under indexed in younger folks, you know, going to Facebook and advertising more isn't going to be beyond law, right? We know Facebook tends to be more middle-aged folks now, or you're going to want to look at platforms like TikTok and Snapchat to be able to reach those, those people. And so demographics has been a really core pillar for us to just understand who we're selling to and understand like, the people in a corporate environment may not be the exact representation of your customer. And so we need to kind of mm -hmm. put ourselves in their shoes before we start making decisions. Got it. And, and from a data perspective, two follow-up questions. Number one, are you kind of working with like a, you know, a Zoom info or some kind of third-party data source where you're getting like anonymized cookies or something to figure out who that customer is? And then number two, is that data then kind of just like added as another table in your data warehouse to overlay on top of your first party customer data? Yeah, it's a good question. It, there's a variety of ways of going about it. I think the, the best way that we've really done to date, I think is really coming from our actually first party consumer research. So we'll actually mm -hmm. uh, work with panels of people, send out surveys, understand who they are, and then we can actually type our own customers. So by asking mm. our customers questions, you know, we've developed what we call our typing tool where, you know, within 15 or so questions, we're able to understand what segment somebody would belong to. And yes, that can then just become another column in your table. And so when we think about our email program, when we think about buying behaviors, segmentation is just another column or another slice of our customers. So that's one way to do it. You know, we've done RFM before, so recency, frequency, monetary value, segmentation, you know, a variety of different ways to go about it. I think the consumer research is a really good starting place to get a lot of rich information, really descriptive information around these cohorts. Got it. And so those, so you're doing multiple cohorts then. It's not just like one survey and then you're applying that to like all the entire customer base. It's like multiple cohorts and kind of getting a sense of like, I guess my, my, my key question I'm trying to figure out is like, let's say you have a thousand customers and you're trying to figure out out of those, out of those a thousand, you know, what is this 100 cohort? What is, what are their preferences, demographics look like? What is this other 100? That's kind of like the main question I'm trying to figure out and how you trying to segment those, those folks. Yeah. So, you know, we would send out to that thousand, those thousand customers, 15 questions. And we ask our customers to, you know, complete this survey 
right? You won't get a hundred percent response rate, but you'll get a, right. a pretty good response rate depending on your customers. And from that, we're able to type them out into one of, you know, five segments. Okay. Once we've kind of typed them out for those that we don't have, we're always able to just like interpret what they would be, right? So Got then it. it's a lot about like lookalike models. Yep. Um, and, you know, we are still, I would say, very much in the early phases of this, you know, still trying to chip away at it. I don't think it's something that can happen overnight. And especially a company of, of our age, you know, I think we are really trying to do this early on to set us up for success. Yeah, no, I just, just from hearing you talk about this segmentation, it's already beyond what I, other companies I've spoken to and that are much, much larger. So it's very interesting seeing how deep and how... I guess mature, you're trying to apply the segmentation to your customers. That's it's really interesting to see. I guess wrapping up a little bit, kind of moving a little more to the softer side of, of things, can you talk to us about how you approached building out your data team and hiring people? I know you mentioned the consultant that you first hired to help with a lot of the day-to-day data engineering tasks, but curious how you think about when to add on new parts to data team, who to hire for, and anything specific to uh, your industry as well. Yeah. So yeah, like I mentioned, right, like starting with the analytics engine, you really start to get that baseline function within the team. And so that was, that was hire number one for us. It was consultant we brought on. And our first hire analytics engineer also was able to flex into some of the analytics work as well, right? Oh, so we great. kind of had a very much like a multi-purpose tool there where him and I were able to not only get into the weeds on analytics engineering, but also start to do baseline analysis, start to do baseline dashboards. From there, I think, you know, as long as you are building for scale within your analytics tech stack, a lot of that's, that heavy lifting is going to happen early on. And of course, you know, we're adding systems and data sources, you know, probably every other week at this point. Mm. But having that robust setup makes it a lot easier to add those. And so our real focus on hiring has actually more been on the analytics side. And, you know, as we built out the data availability, having the analytics team to be able to partner with the business and help them understand tools like Looker and Heap, but then also dive deep into analysis like cart minimums, like what pricing changes may do or discount changes, you know, how things like customer service appeasements affect customer buying. All of that is, is really powered within the analytics team. And so our focus after getting that first analytics engineer in the door has really just been continue to build out the analytics team. And my personal philosophy, you know, I think early on it is really keeping people as generalists. And I think that's really where you're able to get, you know, two things. One, I think you get a, an analyst who is able to grow and learn and is always able to be excited about something, right? Nobody wants to be doing, or very few people want to be doing the same task kind of over and over again or within one sphere. And so, you know, early on, we really wanted to bring folks in who wanted to touch a lot of different departments, who wanted to be able to learn quickly and have a broad business sense. And that's proven to be really successful. They also look at a problem and are understanding it, not just from the marketing angle, but from the operational angle or the customer service appeasements that may need to come. And so I think that's been a really successful approach. You know, as we look to the next year, I would say, you know, we'll continue to build out that analytics function. We'll continue to add support for our partners across the organization. I would, you know, our team, right when we add someone in on the analytics side, their bandwidth will get zapped. 
almost immediately as quick as they ran. And so the question really is, is, you know, adding that next person, are we still getting, you know, the same value for the business? But I think in any business, our size, you know, it's a clear yes. Yeah. Well, one final question before I let you go. What are some things that keep you up at night purely from a data perspective? Of course, you know, obviously everyone's number one goal is to, you know, drive revenues, reduce costs, whatever it is. But I'm curious from your perspective, as the head of data analytics, what are things that keep you up day to day? And you're just like, I have to solve this problem kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing is, you know, our industry has moved towards tools like, you know, Stitch and Fivetran that allow, you know, analytic engineers to tap APIs so easily. We've seen tools like Meltano that allow you to use open source singer taps. And you know, I think that the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is we're moving quickly, right? We're trying to make an impact as fast as possible, you know, but using a lot of managed providers like this opens you up to a lot of risks. And, you know, maybe because it's top of mind, but just the other week, you know, Stitch had a problem with their Shopify API and we had no control to be able to upgrade that API tap. We're kind of at the mercy of Stitch to be able to do that. And so I think the thing that I think a lot about is that trade-off of, you know, building in-house data engineering versus being able to spend those resources in analytics engineers or in analytics folks, knowing that you're going to be a little bit more reliant on managed service providers. And so I think that trade-off of like build it in-house, have all of the control, you know, much higher costs, much longer time versus, you know, buying the, the solution is always a trade-off that I think keeps me up. Because at those times, right, you want to be able to support the business, your partners, your stakeholders as best as you can. And at certain points, it's unfortunate where it is actually out of our control. Right. And so I think those kind of things always are top of mind for me. How do you start to build redundancies in place so that when that breaks, when that open source code changes outside of what you, know, you and your company need, how are you prepared for the future? How are you prepared for the next step? So always a challenge, a lot of trade-offs to be considered. And, you know, something that we spend probably every month putting a little bit of time against is making sure that we have our systems in a really stable place. Got it. Yeah. The classic build versus buy dilemma, right? Exactly. Uh, and once you have a bad incident, you're always like, man, we should have just built it. But, you know, it, it isn't that easy of an answer. Right. For sure. Well, Zach, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. And um, I took a bunch of notes and going to summarize all this, but really appreciate you sharing your insights uh, about your data and analytics team and your current experience at Pair. Yes. Thanks for having me, Al. It's been great. Mm-hmm.